Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. This morning we're beginning a new three-week series through the book, uh, well, through parts of Proverbs, um, called Wisdom for a New Year. And a couple of weeks we're beginning a new series called The Mission to Save the World, which will be a study through the book of Acts. But I wanted to start by kind of looking at uh, wisdom from a biblical perspective, you know, as we talked about briefly through prayer, all the things that are going on in our world. And of course, we just turned the corner on a new year, and I think uh, we are in desperate need of divine wisdom, the kind, of, the kind of wisdom that God actually offers and gives generously to those uh, who ask. So uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, and answering three questions. What is wisdom, really? Uh, we're going to go beyond sort of superficial definitions, I hope. Um, and then how do we get it? How do we actually obtain wisdom? And then finally, what may be preventing you from possessing wisdom? So what is wisdom really? How do we get it? And what may be preventing you from possessing it? So we're going to cover verses 1 through 7, but let me begin uh, just by reading Proverbs 1, verse 1. Here reads the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So if you were to guess, what would you think ranks as the highest grossing Disney movie of all time? Now, some of you uh, with young kids, maybe you've seen uh, every Disney movie or you've seen a bunch of them, and, and uh, this is obvious to you. Uh, my, my first thought before I actually did the research would, was it was going to be The Lion King or something like that, but that's actually toward the middle of the list. It's not Beauty and the Beast. It's not any of the classics. The highest grossing uh, Disney film of all time is Frozen 2, which grossed $1.5 billion, which is a lot of money, obviously. Uh, some men in the room are looking down because they know all the songs and it's just really clear on their face and they don't want to admit it. Uh, the number two uh, grossing movie for Disney is actually Frozen 1, which uh, took in one and a quarter billion dollars. And then after that, you have uh, The Incredibles 2 and you have a couple of the ep uh, installments of the Toy Story franchise. Um, and then when you get way down near the bottom of the list, near the very end, is a movie uh, that came out in 1992, this gem called Aladdin. Uh, I'm sure that many of you have heard of that. Aladdin tells the story of an impoverished young man who comes across this magic lamp, and when he rubs the lamp, out comes a genie who uh, offers to grant him his greatest wish. Now, I bring up that story because Solomon, about whom we're told in verse 1, and is the author of this collection of sayings and mentioned last week, some other folks penned different parts of it, but Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, and he had a similar, though very different uh, experience. There was no lamp involved, there was no, no genie involved, but he did have an encounter with the all-powerful living God who offered to grant Solomon's greatest wish. Solomon was the second son of, of David and Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba was the, uh, the one that David stole from Uriah the Hittite. David and Bathsheba's first son died in infancy, and then they had Solomon. And Solomon, of course, as you know, was a great king. He followed his father David, who followed Saul. And as a young man, Solomon deeply loved God, and he searched out the ways of God, and he desired wisdom, and he really wanted to center his life around the commands of God. And he wanted to bring God glory with whatever he did. Well, God... Uh, appeared to Solomon and in, a, in a dream and said to him, ask for me anything, anything, and I'll give it to you. 
And Solomon, instead of asking for a long life or riches or military conquest or beautiful women, he instead asked for wisdom. He said, you've been faithful to my father, you've loved him and provided for him, and now you've made me king after my father, but I'm young. I don't know what to do. I'm not my father, so will you give me wisdom so that I know how to lead well? And the Lord, as you may recall, was so pleased with Solomon's answer that he said, I'm going to give you what you asked for, but I'm also going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you riches, and I'm going to give you fame so that no one will be compared to you. In fact, the Lord says this in 1 Kings 3, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. So what we have in the Proverbs, these Proverbs represent the wisdom, the guidance that Solomon would pass on to his sons. You read the Proverbs, you see, you hear over and over Solomon saying, incline your ear to me, my son. Listen to what I have to say to you. Be attentive to me, for my wisdom will rescue you. My wisdom will save you. My wisdom will be your protection. Now, it's not just, these words are not just for Solomon's son. Um, These words, these wise words don't come to us in a vacuum, but in the context of a covenantal relationship. God's relationship with his people. And so we have Solomon, as he says right away, he's writing these Proverbs. And then he explains why he's written this book in verses 2 through 6. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So, you know, as we go about our lives, we have, there are rules, we can call them commands or laws that kind of govern the way that we live, and these laws are meant to protect us as a group of people from kind of bringing harm to ourselves or harm to uh, one another. Uh, these, these laws, obedience to the laws, again, is meant to shield us from bringing harm to ourselves. We talked about that last week. Obedience to God's laws can spare us from the consequences of foolish decisions. And the same is true really for, we might say, common law, which is kind of an extension of God's law. As we obey the commands, the laws around us, we do so to our benefit. For example, the fact that it's against the law to text and drive it's a good thing, isn't it? We've all heard stories of, uh, or, or seen the stories on TV of people who've been hurt or injured or people who've even been killed because someone is texting and driving. Such rules protect us. But very few areas in our lives are covered by rules. So we do have some rules, but they're, most of our life is not covered by the rules. You can even take the example I just gave you about not texting and driving we're, 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 there's a law not to text and drive, but there are all kinds of other things we can do while we're driving. You know, we can brush our dog's hair. I've seen people do this. I had a guy pull up to me at a stoplight not long ago who was eating a bowl of soup while driving. Seemed kind of dangerous to me, but he was doing that. Um, we can reach in the back and, and discipline our kids while driving. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know, you're driving, and that can be a distraction. There are all kinds of things that we can do while we're driving that are actually not prohibited by law. Uh, we went to Bridge Street 
about, I guess, a week and a half ago with a couple of my nieces who were visiting uh, from Middle Tennessee and went into a store, I forget the name of it, and one of my nieces found this outfit that she really liked, and so she bought it. We got in the car, they got in their car, we got in our car, we went to a different place. She got out of the car with that outfit on. She had changed while she was driving. As far as I know, that's not against the law. So there, there, there are things that, that the law actually governs us in, but there are plenty of areas in our lives. In fact, most of the areas in our lives are actually not covered by rules. And, and, and I think we have to be thankful for that on some level. It makes for a rather uh, mundane existence if everything we ever did was governed by a set of rules and we just lived in conformity to those rules. So we don't have rules for everything. We don't have laws to protect us, to protect us from harming one another. What we need is wisdom to fill in the blanks. What we need is wisdom to live in a way that actually promotes the good of other people, that actually leads to positive outcomes. So let me give you a definition of wisdom, and there are a lot out there, but I think this captures the essence of this is our first point this morning. Wisdom is the capacity to discern how the heart works, the desire and ability to live in harmony with God's created order. And I think that really captures the essence of it. You know, wisdom is different than knowledge, and you've probably heard these two compared and contrasted before. You can know a lot of things and still be very unwise. You, you can know how machines work or how to write code or how systems work or, or any number of sort of data. You can know all those things, but, but that doesn't mean that you're wise. Now, conversely, you can not be a person whose head is filled with lots of facts. For example, you may not ever know how to break down a machine and put it back together. Um, you may not test well on standardized testing, but you can still be wise. In fact, I know a guy, a very good friend of mine, who's one of the wisest people that I know, but in his life, he, he always tested poorly. All standardized tests, he did poor. He's a terrible speller. In fact, I, I get emails from him, and I immediately go into editorial mode. I sometimes don't even pay attention to what he's saying because the spelling's bad, the syntax is bad. But he's actually very, very wise. He's a very wise man. So wisdom and knowledge are, are not the same. Again, you can know all kinds of things, but the heart is not so easily understood. Desire, why we desire the things we desire, why we do the things we do, that's not so easily grasped. I've probably heard someone say that wisdom is knowledge applied, and, and I think that's fair as far as it goes, but it's more than that. Again, wisdom is a sort of heart understanding. It's a, it's a recognition of the way people work, how we get along, the way the heart functions. And when I talk about the heart... I'm not just talking about the, the sort of seed of our emotion. That's often the way we think about the heart. We may say, well, you know, I followed my heart and not my head on this one. And what we mean by that is I really kind of I let my emotions rule. I didn't really think clearly. I got, I got carried away in my emotions. But, but in Hebrew thinking, you know, Proverbs, is, it's, comes from the context of the ancient Near East and wisdom, literature, and Hebrew thinking in the minds of the Old Testament authors, the heart was was less about our emotions, although certainly that's part of it, and it was actually more about our desire, our, our motivations, you might say. Uh, Dane Ortland, whom I referenced last week, says, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it speaks of the central animating center of all we do. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart, in biblical terms, is not part of who we are, but the center of who we are. 
Our heart is what defines and directs us. It is what makes us human, makes the human being each of us is. The heart drives all that we do. And you know, I don't know about you, when I'm getting to know someone, building a new friendship or a new relationship, like what I really want to know most is, I mean, sports teams and, you know, fan bases and affinities and all that, that's fine. But I want to know what is it that really makes a person tick? What is it that gets a person up in the morning? What is it that, that really moves and motivates a person? And this requires wisdom. This is what wisdom seeks to answer. So when I mentioned that it's Wisdom is the ability to discern how the heart works. It's the desire, the ability to live in harmony with God's created order. What I mean is, and this is what I think Solomon is offering here, it's an understanding of who we are as human beings, why we do what we do, how people get along, how peace is promoted. It's it's the way to live that actually promotes human flourishing. Now, why do we desperately need wisdom? Because as fallen creatures, now we are redeemed sinners, but we have been totally affected by sin. And so theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. It affects the way that we think, the way that we reason, the way that we see things, what we believe, how we argue, all of those things. All of that has been infected and affected by the sin that was passed on from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so Um, All of us have blind spots. We have areas that we just don't see clearly. And this is because we are not yet glorified. We carry around the baggage of the flesh. And wisdom teaches us how to live in a way that reflects our generous Creator, which is a way then that actually works for our good and, and for the good of others. Wisdom, Solomon says, rewards those who possess it. This is why Solomon would say, if it takes everything you have, If it takes all that you own, get wisdom. Proverbs 24, he says, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So in the wisdom literature, in the Proverbs specifically, wisdom is presented personified as a woman, who, Lady Wisdom, who calls out in the streets, who is inviting people to come to her so that they might better understand the way of life. She beckons and she pleads. And at times she begs people to come to her to find wisdom and, and understanding. And even though the invitation is to all, many people reject her. In fact, most people do. Others scoff at her, and sadly, they bring ruin on themselves. But to those who receive her, she brings long life, fulfillment, and a future. So Solomon imparts to, to, to he writes to impart wisdom. Wisdom is received. It's, it's not earned, it's granted. And that brings us to our second point. Wisdom is a gift. To those who receive it, it brings long life, confidence, satisfaction, and protection. Now, that's saying a lot, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a huge statement. But this is what Solomon says are the, the, the rewards of wisdom in this book. Now, of course, th- these are, and we're going to talk more about this next week, these are not guarantees. These are general truths, general principles. And so you can be, you can have wisdom and still have your life cut short by accident, disease, illness, whatever it is. Um, 
we live in a sin-cursed world and we, where we are broken, we're surrounded by other broken people, and so everybody experiences pain, and everybody deals with disappointment, and everybody has dreams that are dashed, and everybody gets sick, and so, and sometimes people see their very lives cut short for any number of reasons. But what Solomon is saying is for those who get wisdom, for those who receive wisdom, self-inflicted wounds are decreased exponentially. Now, you might say, well, if wisdom is a gift, if it's something received, how do I get it? Well, let me answer by showing you the three types of people that we regularly encounter in the Proverbs. The three types of people that we see over and over in the Proverbs. As wisdom calls out, as Lady Wisdom calls out, she's met by three different types of people. And all three are actually evident in this chapter. The wise, verse 5, the simple, verse 4, and the fool, verse 7, is often sometimes called the scoffer uh, in the Proverbs. So in this chapter alone, Solomon gives some clues as to how we identify who we are and even how we might move from one category to another. This is important. How we might actually move from being a fool to being a wise person or being simple to being wise. First, the wise. Solomon says, the wise hear and increase in learning. But the wise hear and increase in learning. When I was uh, first got into pastoral ministry, 2001, I was my title was I think associate pastor and co-teacher, and so I was in the pulpit maybe 12, 14 weeks a year. And I had other ministries that I was responsible for, uh, global engagement and campus ministries and some other things. But I also had in my box, so to speak, uh, our ministry to senior adults. These are folks in their you know, mid-70s, 80s, 90s, and I had no idea how much of a blessing this was going to be to me. I mean, just the, the friendships and the sweetness of the relationships that we established, it was, it, you know, it was really soul-stirring uh, in some ways. And so what we do is we'd meet on Wednesday from 11 to 12, and we would pray together, and then we'd have lunch together for those who could stay. And, you know, when you have a, you started, I started this ministry when I got to the church, and when you start a new ministry, of course, you have to have a name for it. And so I gave the name of the ministry, Wiser Still, uh, from Proverbs 9.9, Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. And what I saw in that ministry, which it was so encouraging to me, was people in their 80s, people in their early 90s who were still learning and growing. It was incredible. You know, sometimes when people become advanced in age, they say, well, look, I mean, I've, look I've learned everything I can learn, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks or whatever. But these folks were so eager to continue to learn and grow they actually really ministered to me. And what, what Solomon will say here, what he's alluding to here in, in verse 5, is that, that one of the ways that we grow in wisdom, one of the ways that we get wisdom, is by actually having, putting on a supple heart, a soft heart, that actually desires to learn, that is eager to grow. And I saw this, uh, again, in the people that I a minister to. They had soft hearts and they wanted to learn more and more. And so, you know, you want to you have a life that's, that's generally speaking devoid of some of the consequences of foolishness. Solomon says, put on wisdom. In other words, learn from other people. Be open to new thoughts and new ideas. Have a soft heart that's teachable. Such an important concept, being teachable. Pleading with God for wisdom, which is a prayer, again, that God says He will answer. Learn to see beauty in everything that's good. 
Wisdom doesn't simply reward, result in a reward for ourselves, but also it benefits all those who come across it. Verse 3, Solomon says that one of the reasons he's taken pen to paper or ink to parchment is to instruct us on how to, quote, deal with one another in righteousness, justice, and equity. And so Solomon is writing to his sons, and he certainly probably believes that one of them will maybe follow him in terms of being king. And he knows that you can't actually help people get along. You can't foster an environment of peace unless you learn to deal equitably and fairly and justly with people, which is, it, which is the fruit of wisdom. When I was looking to buy my, uh, the second car that I'd ever owned, um, I had for a long time, I had a 1977 Ford Granada. And then I, when that thing kind of died, I, was, I looked at this, I saw this car that I really wanted in the newspaper. And this is, this is 1993, so there weren't, the internet wasn't around, or at least it wasn't a big deal at that time. And, uh, you know, you couldn't go to Craigslist. And so you had to get out a newspaper, and I saw this ad for a, a 1984 Datsun Nissan Maxima listed for $1,900. And I thought, okay, this, I mean, I had just graduated from college, and I was heading down to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was going to take on a job, a single guy. And so when I looked at this car, and I loved it. I mean, it was just, it had power everything. Power windows, a power moon roof. It had, everything was it sort of tricked out. And I loved this thing. It was $1,900, which was actually well below Hundreds of dollars, maybe close to $1,000 under the appraised value. But, you know, I kind of consider myself, I was 21, I consider myself as a no-nonsense negotiator. And so I met with this couple, I looked over the car, and I said, you know, I can't really do 1900 but I can do 1850 I mean, I really thought I was a big baller. You know, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm really going to give him an offer he can't refuse. $50. So I said, I can't do 1900 but I can do 1850 He said, you know... This thing is hundreds of dollars under the blue book value, and so uh, this is going to have to do. It's nineteen hundred. That's what we're we're offering. What we'll take. So I started to walk away. You know how you do, and I kept looking back, which I'm sure gave away my interest level. But I'm walking away. I kept looking back, and finally I just turned around. I said, "Okay, you know what? Fine. I'll 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 come up with the nineteen. Here's nineteen hundred dollars." So bought the car. Loved the car. Had it for a long time. But two weeks after I bought the car, I got a check in the mail for $50 from the guy that sold it to me. And he said, you know, we just figured that you probably need the $50 more than I do. And not only was that generous, but that actually was very wise. He was, he was promoting this, the good of not just himself and his wife, but actually my good. He was concerned not just about his own good, but also my own prosperity. And this is how wisdom works. Wisdom is the ability to see how the heart works, to act in a way that is beneficial and rewarding to everyone. Again, this guy, didn't, he didn't need the $50, but I did. And so the wise person not only brings good to himself, but all the people around him tend to flourish. Now, the next, lady, the next person that Lady Wisdom comes across is the simple one. Solomon says in verse 4, he writes, "...to give prudence to the simple." Now, the simple is the one who hasn't pursued wisdom. The simple is the one who hasn't had any, any urgency in actually learning and actually growing in understanding. The simple is not dumb. The simple is not lacking intellectually. He's not stupid or lacks a brain. In fact, he can be very smart. He's just not pursuing understanding. He's not desirous of learning 
He'd rather keep going in the direction that he's going. Old Testament uh, scholar Derek Kidner says this about the simple. The simple is no half-wit. He is a person whose instability could be rectified, but who prefers not to accept discipline in the school of wisdom. The words that you most often hear from the simple one is, no, I know already. I know, I know. You, You don't have to teach me. You don't have to tell me that. I know that already. Now, sometimes the simple receive counsel, and by God's grace, they grow to become wise. But sometimes the simple dig in their feet, and their refusal to pursue learning actually becomes a stubbornness that results in great hardship. And sometimes it takes a tragedy for the simple to put off his simple ways. The simple life is filled with disappointment, embarrassment, conflict. But again, the simple can become wise if she will just humble herself and listen. Put off the I know it already attitude and learn. Now finally, there's a third type of person we see in the Proverbs, and that is the fool. Unlike the wise who pursues wisdom and the simple who just doesn't go after wisdom, the fool actually actively spurns wisdom. He is arrogant. She is stubborn. He is flippant. Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now that word, that Hebrew word for knowledge is also often translated wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So a fool, if a fool gets an idea in his head, no one could persuade him otherwise. Though a dozen wise men and women warn him, he will not listen. He will do what he wants to do. Solomon says, like a dog returns to his vomit, rather graphic image, so the fool returns to his folly. Just like a a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his stupid logic. He will not be persuaded. He knows. Now, often the fool considers himself a genius because he understands things in a way that nobody else could. He recognizes insights that nobody else could ever glean. And the fool is dangerous to himself and dangerous to others. Proverbs 17 tells us that you're better off coming across a bear robbed of her cubs. And if you've ever been to the Great Smoky Mountains, you've seen uh, uh, the mama bear with her cubs, you understand the gravity of this. You're better off coming across a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. You don't ever want to partner with a fool. Not in a business, not in a financial investment, not in any sort of spiritual friendship, not in marriage, because a fool will necessarily bring you to ruin. Now, often the fool prides himself again in, in, in being so original that no one else can understand him, but his reason is deeply flawed, and even though everybody else sees his foolishness, he can't see it. In fact, the most devastating evidence of his foolishness is that he even denies the existence of God himself, which Solomon says is the starting point. The fear of God is the starting point, the beginning of wisdom. He says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, again, that Hebrew word. But what is the fear of the Lord? Well, this is a phrase that has, as we say, a broad semantic range. In other words, it is a phrase that is rich with layers of meaning. 
Now, on one level, it means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means to be so enamored by, so awe-stricken by, so terrified by the all-consuming God of the universe that we recognize what He can do and what He does to those who reject Him. I made the mistake early on in my pastoral ministry of reducing the terror aspect of fear And I made uh, the fear of God simply about being sort of awestruck by God, about respecting God and honoring God. And I think the analogy that I I used was, and this is kind of a well-worn analogy, but a person standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're sort of teetering on the edge and you're just sort of overwhelmed by the grandiosity of it all. And you're just like, wow, that that is awesome. And certainly the fear of, of the Lord is not less than that, but it's much more than that. As author and theologian Michael Horton writes, often in some conservative contexts, the reading of a fear of God passage is often followed up quickly with explanation, dying the death of a thousand qualifications. Fear doesn't really mean fear. It means something more like respect. But respect may be registered in no more than a polite gesture. No, fear means fear. It means that God alone is terrifying in His glory, righteous in His judgments, and merciful to all who call on His name. The right kind of fear, godly fear, casts out fear and leads to trust and love. Now, I'll explain that more in just a minute. But to fear God, again, this is the starting point, is to be so aware of the splendor of His beauty, so aware of the grandeur of His holiness, the infinite power that He possesses, that we're terrified at what such a God can do and will do to those who reject Him. But it is deeper than that. Again, peeling back another layer, we might say even at a more fundamental level, to fear God is to know Him as He truly is. This is remember, this is written in the context of the ancient Near East, and this is the way it would have been understood. It is to know God as He truly is. To fear God is to know God in such a way that we we respond to His revelation of Himself in a way that we are moved to worship by His power and splendor and holiness. C.S. Lewis once wrote, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. So, to truly fear God is to know God, not just in an academic way, not even just in a, quote, theological way. In other words, it's not just for the books. To fear God is to know God in a personal way. But we have to ask the question, how do we know in a personal way the God who is said to have created the world, who rips up trees by the voice of His, by, by his, the breath of His nostril, the God who, who says a word and it is carried out? Well, this is how this passage, even the early parts of Proverbs, uh, points us to Jesus. Remember I said at the beginning that wisdom is how the heart works, uh, the capacity to discern how desire works, how to live in a way that is in harmony with God's created order. Well, this starts with being brought to, being brought in harmony with, being reconciled to the very God of the universe John Calvin said, we can never accurately understand our world or even ourselves 
unless we begin with God, who He is and who we are to Him. And again, this is, this is how even the wisdom literature, even Proverbs 1, is pointing us ahead to Christ. The Apostle Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But in that same letter, Paul will also say a chapter earlier about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. See, there are some things that we can know about God just by looking out in creation. Romans 1 tells us we know about God's existence, His eternality, and His power. Just by looking at the world, just by looking at the heavens. You stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you stand there and you're looking out on the Grand Canyon, you become immediately and acutely aware of the very presence of God, the existence of God. And there, of course, we can learn more about God. That's called general revelation, creation. We learn more about God through special revelation, through the Word of God, which by this incredible story of divine rescue, this meta-narrative The story of a rescuing God, a God who is, a God who acts, a God who speaks. We learn much about God in that way. But the only way to truly know God personally, the only way to be reconciled into a right relationship with this God, is through Jesus Christ, who Himself is God. Here's our third and final point this morning. If wisdom begins with knowing God, who God is, and who we are in relation to Him, Only Jesus can take us there. Jesus shows us the Father. And didn't we see this so beautifully in John's Gospel? If you're part of our church a year ago, we go through John's Gospel. Jesus, in these incredible ways, says and demonstrates how He reveals to us who God is and what God is like. And we see that, of course, in all the Gospels. We see that wherever Jesus is featured. When Jesus goes in, He turns over the tables in the temple and He's He's so angry because the Gentiles have been pushed to the edge. And this place that was supposed to be a a, a place of prayer for all the nations has actually resulted in the exclusion of the Gentile people. Jesus goes and He turns over the tables and we see there God's heart for the nations. When Jesus welcomes someone to Himself and He touches someone that everybody else had written off as unclean, everybody else had cast away, we see the compassion of God. And when Jesus looks down, he's at the top of the mountain, and he looks down and he sees people, and he, his own people, and he, and he weeps over his people who he says are like a sheep without a shepherd. We see the mercy of God. And when we see uh, Jesus calming the storm, the raging sea, we see God's power over all creation. When Jesus invites the weary, the burdened, the exhausted, the broken down, all of them to come to him, we see the gentleness of God. When Jesus is born, we see the glorious revelation of how God will go, just how far God will go to bring us home. When Jesus says as He hangs on the cross, 
it is finished, we see the completeness of God's forgiveness. Which means for those who are in Christ, for those who approach this God through Jesus, through His cross work, nothing will ever stand between us and God. It means if you've come to God through Christ, if you've put aside your own self-reliance, if you've turned from your sin, you've repented, you put your faith in Jesus, it means that God has brought you to Himself in such a way that His love for you is an unchangeable reality because God Himself is unchangeable. It means that no sin that you've committed, no offense that you've done, no failure, no setback, not even a a lack of daily progress will prevent you from being loved and accepted by God at every moment. His approval is yours in Christ. His acceptance is yours in Christ. His forgiveness is secure in Christ, which, of course, frees us to live with joy. It frees us to live with laughter. It frees us to live uh, without fear. God has done this miraculous thing to bring bring us to Himself, and now we can know He will continue to do work. He will continue to do miracles to sustain us, to preserve us, and to keep us close to Himself. The completeness of God's forgiveness in Christ frees us to live without guilt, frees us to live without any sort of fear. So we we can know, we, we never have to wonder at any moment how God feels about us. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We don't have to fear the condemnation of God because all that was taken care of on the cross. When our sin was put on Christ, And His perfect righteousness was given to us. This is what Michael Horton meant in the quote that I read earlier, That as he borrowed from John, that there is a type of fear that actually casts out fear. It sounds sort of oxymoronic, doesn't it? But what he's saying is when we fear God in the sense that we know Him personally, we've been brought to God in Christ. We recognize who He is, holy and perfect in all His ways, and who we are, broken and sinful and sin-cursed and rebellious, and that leads us, brings us to a place of repentance and faith, then that casts out all fear because we never have to worry about our future. We never have to worry about how God feels about us, so to speak. You ever heard anyone say, what you fear the most is what you worship? It's, it's kind of deep, isn't it? But it's a very true statement. What it means is what we're most afraid to lose, our health, our job, our reputation, our money, our retirement, our respect, our children, what we're most afraid to lose reveals what we ascribe the greatest worth to, which is really the essence of worship. What are you most afraid to lose this morning? Is it your health? Is it your respect? Is it your job, your career, your financial security? Is it your children? Are you fear that your children may move away? What does that reveal about what you're worshiping this morning? I mentioned in my opening that one of the questions we would answer is what may be preventing you from possessing wisdom? Could it mean this morning that you don't fear God? In the sense, you don't really know Him personally. 
I mean, you, you know about God, and maybe you know more facts about God. Maybe you know more the attributes of God. You've got them committed by uh, alphabet, you've al- alphabetized them, whatever it is, but you don't really know God. You've never really come to God through the work of His Son. You, you still actually stand at odds with God. Well, what, Pro- what Solomon is saying in Proverbs is that wisdom is available. The sort of wisdom that is life-transforming. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a, a happy life or no trials or tribulations. Of course not. But it's a sort of wisdom that brings with us satisfaction and confidence and, generally speaking, a long life, better relationships, happiness. And it's a wisdom that starts with, at the fundamental level, knowing God in a personal way, which is only possible through the person and work of Jesus May God give us the grace to embrace the wisdom that He's offering in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that when we were fools, You were gracious enough to give us the invitation of wisdom. And when we were rebellious, when we should have been cut off forever, You sent Your Son to die for us as our substitute so that we no longer had to be estranged from You, so we no longer had to be under Your wrath. Father, I want to pray this morning for, if there's one here this morning who doesn't truly know You, I want to pray for that person. Uh, Maybe he he, uh, has never repented from his sin and put his faith in Jesus. Maybe, Maybe she's here this morning and She's the most obedient and law-abiding person around, but she's puffed up with self-righteousness. In a way, she may not even realize. I want to pray for those who are outside of Christ this morning that you might do a miraculous work in bringing them to repentance and faith. I want to pray for the one who's here this morning who's brought all kinds of consequences on himself or herself because of foolish living, foolish decisions. I pray that you would supernaturally bring about a softness of heart. God, will you please do it? Bring about a suppleness of heart, a willingness to learn and grow. And will you move that person from being a fool to being someone who's wise for their benefit, the benefit of those around them and for your glory. And for the simple one, the one who is just not pursuing understanding, the one who is just not... Uh, after instruction or wisdom, will you stir in her heart a burning desire to learn and to grow, recognizing that, that Jesus told us that the greatest command is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us wherever we are in our spiritual uh, journey, so to speak, uh, to rest in what's been done for us in Christ. And I pray that you would stir us so much this morning with your generosity and your faithfulness that we sing, great are you, Lord. You've given us even the breath in our lungs is from you. And we know there is no other God. Help us to sing with integrity, with honesty, as those who have been reconciled to you. Great are you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.